0: One of the New Testament's favorite expressions is the two-word phrase, one another. There are at least 58 one another commands in the New Testament. Here are just a few examples. Bear one another's burdens. Build up one another. Care for one another. Comfort one another. Forgive one another. Honor one another be kind to one another, be hospitable to one another, love one another, pray for one another, submit to one another, serve one another, and the list goes on. These commands highlight the character of the relationships that should exist among us in the body of Christ. All believers have a responsibility to one another. And Romans chapter 15 and 16 revolve around four more of these one another commands chapter 15 verse 5 be like-minded toward one another chapter 15 verse 7 receive one another chapter 15 verse 14 admonish one another and chapter 16 verse 16 greet one another these final two chapters of Romans focus on the Christian's duty toward one another well verse 1 of Romans 15 picks up where Romans 14 left off. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Once there were two men they were out in the woods when a giant angry grizzly bear jumped out of the bushes and started to stalk them. Well, immediately one of the men he reached into his backpack and he pulled out his running shoes. His buddy asked him, he says, you're not going to try to outrun that grizzly bear, are you? Full-grown grizzly bears can run 30, 35 miles per hour. Well, while lacing up his shoes, his buddy answered him and said, don't worry, I know I can't outrun a grizzly bear, but I don't have to. All I have to do is outrun you. (laughs) And sadly, that's the attitude of many Christians. For rather than bear with a weaker brother we run out ahead of them and we leave them behind to get eaten by the spiritual grizzlies. Our goal should be to love one another, to put others first, not just save our own skin. The previous chapter warned us about using our freedom in Christ in a way that causes a brother or sister to stumble. Maybe you can enjoy a glass of wine with your meal. But the brother or sister who struggles with alcohol sees you and assumes that if it's okay for you, then it's okay for him. Your example causes a brother to sin. Paul says this shouldn't happen. We need to bear with the weaker brother or sister. Like taking a walk in the park with a little toddler. You don't expect a child to walk at the adult's pace. No, the adult slows down to stay in step with the child. And that should be the attitude of a mature Christian. We should be willing to do the same. Our goal shouldn't be to flaunt our freedom or to prove our point. We should love and help other Christians grow. Then he tells us in verse 2, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul quotes Psalm 69, verse 9. It's a prophecy concerning our Lord Jesus, how our Lord came to earth to bear our burdens. Do we need to look any further than Jesus for an example of someone who forfeited his own freedoms, his own rights, his own privileges for the good of others? To follow Jesus is realizing the impact that we have on other people. He says, for whatever the things were written before, were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And here he's saying that Jesus is just the tip of the iceberg. The Old Testament was full of people who forfeited their freedoms to serve others. Noah and Joseph and Moses and Daniel and the prophets, all these men set aside their own well-being for the good of others. Now, that's what stands as a model for you and me. For he says in verse 5, Now, may the God of patience and comfort. And let me just stop right there. Remember this the next time you feel like you failed the Lord or you're worried that he might have given up on you. Apparently, God wants to be known as the God of patience. Aren't you glad? did not that bring great hope? The God of patience? If you're a knucklehead like me, if you're a slow learner like me, you need lots and lots of patience. That God is a God of long suffering is a great comfort. Our great God is the God of patience. He says, and may God grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. And here we have one of the New Testament's one another commands we're to be like-minded toward one another. Now, in light of Romans chapter 14 and his teaching on gray matters, I'm certain that Paul here isn't advocating perfect agreement on all minutia of church life or every detail in doctrine. But is it possible for us to be of the same mind when it comes to the big stuff? Boy, I think so. The Bible is God's word and the arbitrator of all truth. That should be our attitude. Jesus is God's Son. And our final authority, grace through faith, is God's way to be saved. The church is the body whose goal is to spread that truth to a lost world. All these things should be issues on which we're united. You recall the old adage, In essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. But pay attention to that first line, In essentials unity. There are some non-negotiables on which we all must agree. Without essentials in unity, there can be nothing else. And here's why we should be like-minded. He says in verse 6, That you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, our praise packs a bigger punch when it's offered in unison. It pleases God when he sees and when he hears his children glorifying him with one mind and with one mouth. Man, when my kids were little, on rare occasions, they would approach their parents with a unified front. It would usually come from Zach. He would be the spokesman. Dad, we all want to go to Brewster's for ice cream tonight. Natalie and Nick, they were quick to chime in. Yeah, Dad, we do. Even little Mac. Me too, dad. Me too wants ice cream too. See, the kids didn't know. They didn't know it. But I was usually so weary of all their squabbling and all their fussing and fighting that whenever they agreed on something, I was so excited it was almost a done deal. I was more than willing to give them whatever they asked if they could agree. I think this is behind Jesus' offer that he makes in Matthew 18 verse 19 when he says, If two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. God is so excited we can agree on something that he's willing to give it to us. In praise and in prayer, it delights God when we come to him with like minds. He says, Therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. And here's another of these one another commands. Receive one another. You know, when the prodigal son returned home, the father didn't wait for him up the road. He didn't wait for him on the porch until he arrived. No, when he saw him coming down the road, he ran to him. And we're told he fell on his neck and he kissed him and embraced him and he welcomed him home. The father didn't hold the sorrowful son at arm's length until he had proved his sincerity. The boy wasn't placed on probation or bonded until his court date or made to wait 90 days for his benefits to kick in. No, no. He was given full family membership immediately. And this is the way you and I should treat newcomers to the body of Christ whether they're new believers or renewed believers or just newcomers to our fellowship, let's receive one another just as Christ also received us. You know, it's been said the Christian church is the only society in the world in which membership is based on the qualification that the candidate is unworthy of membership. The church should be a grace place. We should be open to anyone who repents of their sin and believes in Jesus. The church isn't a sorority you pledge or a country club to which you apply or a hospital that checks your insurance. No, we take everybody that Jesus brings us. And then verse 8, now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision or the Jews for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the Father's And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, and he quotes here Psalm 18, verse 49, for this reason, I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. In Romans 11, Paul talked about God's plan for Jews and Gentiles, that it's God's will to save both. And here he reels off four Old Testament scriptures to prove his point. Well, He's already quoted Psalm 18 verse 10. And again, he says, Deuteronomy 32, verse 49, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Gentiles will join the Jews in rejoicing over God's goodness and mercy. Then Psalm 117, verse 1, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples. And then Paul's fourth quote, and again, Isaiah says, and he quotes Isaiah 11, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. Of course, the root of Jesse is prophetic of our Lord Jesus. He was born of Jesse's family tree, the lineage of Jesse's son David. And Isaiah says this root of Jesse will one day reign over both Jews and Gentiles. And so, Psalm 18, Deuteronomy 32. Psalm 117 and Isaiah 11 all affirm the inclusivity of Jesus. He is an equal opportunity Savior. He saves Jews and non-Jews alike. In fact, he saves anybody who will call on his name. Aren't you glad? Verse 13, now may the God of hope, and here's another great name for God. Not only do we serve the God of patience and comfort, but we also serve the God of hope. How can you be out of hope or call a situation hopeless if you truly serve the God of hope? Do you recall that old song we used to sing as kids? I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. You remember that? You remember there was a second stanza? I've got the peace that passes understanding down in my heart. But there's a third stanza. It's my favorite. I've got the happy hope that heckles heathens down in my heart. (laughs) Don't you love that? The happy hope that heckles heathens. Our world has no hope today. But Jesus makes all things possible for those who trust in him. Our hope heckles this world's hopelessness. He says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that you may abound in hope. We have an abounding hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. And here's a third one another command." We've read, be like-minded toward one another and receive one another and now admonish one another. This word admonish, it means to remind or to caution. And he's telling us here, if we ever see a brother or sister stray, we need to get involved. It's our business to say something and to warn that straying Christian. Verse 15, Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you. And here Paul, he says, look, I took time to admonish you. Now you need to take time to admonish one another. In fact, if Paul hadn't admonished the Romans and other churches, most of the New Testament would have never been written. Paul cared for the churches he started, and he was not afraid to confront them when necessary. And likewise, when you and I see a brother straying, we owe them a warning. Real love will admonish a brother. And then Paul finishes his thought in verse 16. Because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified, by the Holy Spirit. Remember, Paul saw himself as the apostle to the Gentiles. They were his mission field. And so in essence here, he's saying that the Gentile churches were his offering to God, and thus he wanted them to be godly. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God, for I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. And this was a wise policy. Paul didn't speak on subjects he hadn't personally experienced himself. If Paul wrote of it, he had lived it firsthand. And this wasn't that limiting to Paul, for he had seen many things from God's hands. He writes, For in mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Paul had preached the gospel of grace and he had seen miraculous displays of God's spirit, what he called signs and wonders. You know, as Jesus promised his disciples that signs and wonders would follow the gospel. Jesus promised miracles would follow the message. And I believe that still happens. I believe they'll... Miracles will still be the gospel's traveling companions wherever it's taught. God still wants to work miracles in our lives today. Well, Paul was called by God to take the gospel to the Gentile world. And here he files his travel report. He says he logged from Jerusalem to Elycrium, a total of 1,400 miles. This is the day before transportation. He had logged those miles on foot or on boat, from Mount Calvary in Jerusalem, where Jesus was crucified and the earth quaked and the veil in the temple was torn in two, to northern Macedonia, where another earthquake rocked a Philippian jail. All across the breadth of the Roman Empire, countless lives had been transformed and redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the next few verses, Paul reflects back on how he had preached the gospel And how thousands of lives had been transformed. And Paul had come to realize that the gospel was the most powerful change agent known to man. Verse 20 he tells us. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel. Not where Christ was named. Lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written. And he quotes here Isaiah 52. To whom he was not announced they shall see. And those who have not heard shall understand. Paul's goal was to reach the unreached. He tilled up the unplowed fields. See, Paul targeted new areas for his ministry. He was a pioneer at heart. And I think we should be too. In the 1980s, after I finished Bible college, I had several opportunities to connect with Calvary Chapels in California. But that seemed like such a waste to me. I wanted to start a Calvary in the South where there weren't any. And that remains our attitude. This is why we support a young man in the Congo, in a little town called Goma in the Congo. For rather than plant on another man's foundation, Pastor Daniel has gone where no one has gone before. And we've tried to help him. See, even in your life and in my life, do we limit our interactions to other Christians Or do we make time for folks who've yet to believe, those who haven't been reached? I read recently that only 34% of Americans claim to have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Hey, that means there's still plenty of unreached people to reach. Verse 22, for this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you, but now no longer having a place in these parts. See, Paul had written his letter to the Romans from the port city of Corinth. But he was now on the move. He says, And having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. Paul wanted to go to Spain to preach the gospel. And he hoped his voyage would lay over in Rome so he could visit the church there. Now, whether or not Paul made it to Spain, we don't really know. But Paul did journey to Rome, courtesy of the Caesar himself. Remember back in Acts chapter 27, it was the Roman governor Festus who paid for Paul's trip to Rome so that he could be interviewed by the Caesar. He says, but now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. At the time, Jerusalem was his immediate destination, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. See, famine had hit the region of Judea. And Paul had collected an offering from among the believers in Greece that he wanted to take back to the Jews in Jerusalem. He says, It pleased them indeed, and they they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, Their duty is also to minister to them in material things. The Gentile believers in Europe realized that they stood on Jewish shoulders. The Jews had been the chosen people of God. They had been the custodians of the scripture. They had been heirs of God's covenant. They had even been the brothers of our Lord. The Gentiles owed the Jews a spiritual debt. And how do you repay a spiritual debt. Well, according to Paul, with your monetary support. Friends, this is true of a church, of a pastor, of a ministry. I'm not trying to be self-serving here in saying it. It's just a biblical principle. Anyone who invests in you spiritually, then you need to repay them by encouraging them financially. The Jerusalem church had funded the missionaries who took the gospel to the Gentiles. Now it was time for the Gentiles to return the favor to the Jews. And then he says in verse 28 Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. And I'm always amazed by this because Paul could have used the principle he had just laid out to advance his own fundraising efforts. You know, he could have said, you know, you owe a debt of gratitude to those who invest in your ministry. And you know, I've invested in your ministry. Send those checks to paulsministries.org, you know, or Whatever. But rather than ask for money, what does he ask for? He asks for prayer. Apparently he needs that most. He says, and pray that I may be delivered from those in Judea who who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem might be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God, and may be refreshed together with you. Paul makes three requests. Protection from his enemies. Pray that I'll make it to Jerusalem. Completion of his mission. Pray that the church there will receive the offering and then rejuvenation from his friends. Romans 15 ends with Paul's salutation. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So that chapter 16 becomes devoted to Paul's personal correspondence. And this is really interesting to me. It emphasizes the fact that Paul was not only a great soul winner, but he was also a great friend maker. For in chapter 16, the apostle will mention 35 different people by name. Now remember, Paul had never been to Rome, but he knew many of its church, its church members. You know, it's amazing before the days of social media, while Paul was busy winning the world for Jesus and writing most of the New Testament. The apostle spent a lot of his time keeping up with his friends. Paul was a people person, as every Christian should be. He loved the people that his Lord Jesus had died to save. You know, when we get too hurried, too busy, maybe feel too important for personal relationships in our lives, that's when we know our priorities are out of kilter. We need to stay up with our friends and the first person that Paul mentions is a gal named Phoebe. He writes of her. He says, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Synchrea. Synchria was the seaport of the metropolis of Corinth. Notice here the Greek word translated servant can also be rendered deacon. And this is one of the reasons why I believe women served as deacons in the early church. Now remember, deacon was not a position of authority, but of service. The deacons were the designated doers in the church, and women served in this capacity. The Revised Standard Version actually renders verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deaconess of the church in Sincrea. Even today, needs often pop up in church life that necessitate a feminine touch. And that's why God appointed deaconesses to serve. And Paul says of this wonderful lady, Phoebe, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many, and of myself also. Apparently, Phoebe was the letter carrier who delivered Paul's epistle to the Romans. Imagine, it's the spring of 58 A.D. Paul watches Phoebe board the boat and he hands her the scroll that she slips under her robe. This was the opus of Paul's faith. This was the grand document of theology, the book of Romans. She puts it under her robe and Paul trusts her to get it to its recipients. And now he tells the church at Rome to receive her And respect her and assist her when she comes. Good job, Phoebe. You made it. But his greetings continue in verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Aquila and Priscilla appear seven times in the scripture and always as a team. You know, Paul first met them in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. And like Paul, they were tent makers by trade. And everywhere, Priscilla and Aquila settle. They end up with a church meeting in their home, including here in Rome. I mean, here was a couple who opened their hearts and opened their homes for the gospel, as well as putting their heads on the chopping block. For notice what Paul says next. Who risk their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. We don't know the exact incident Paul's referencing, but Aquila and Priscilla were not fair-minded friends. Somewhere along the line, they had put themselves in harm's way to protect Paul. They were faithful friends. And then verse five, likewise greet the church that is in their house. Again, they had opened their home for a gathering of believers. You remember churches met in halls and in homes for the first 300 years of Christianity. And by the way, that was the gospel's most expansive period. Apparently, we don't really need all the buildings that we've got. We had no single-use buildings or facilities, and yet the church exploded and carried the gospel to the world. He says, greet my beloved Eponidas, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. Epineus was Paul's first convert in the region of Achaia there in southern Greece, other folks would follow, but Paul always remembered the first convert. He says, Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Now here's an older couple, and it seemed to have been interesting, an interesting couple to get to know. They were fellow Jews with Paul. And in the past, they had been arrested for Jesus' sake. They'd also been believers longer than even Paul. And although we know little about them, Paul recognizes that they were respected and appreciated by the apostles at the time. will not it be great to sit down with Andronicus and Junia when we get to heaven and find out more about them? Verse 8 continues to list Paul's friends in Rome. And notice the terms of endearment he uses. Greet Amplius. My beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Stochus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. The Greek word translated approved means tried and tested. Apelles had been through the fire and had been found faithful. And then, verse 10 greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Herod the Great. The infamous Herod, who murdered the Bethlehem infants on that first Christmas, had a grandson named Aristobulus. History tells us that he lived in Rome. What an irony if this had been the same man. Imagine the brutal killer's own grandson, now following the newborn king from Bethlehem. Wouldn't that have been amazing? On the other hand, though, the fact that Paul addresses Aristobulus' household and not him per se could mean that he was an unbelieving husband with a believing wife and kids. Perhaps the whole family had been saved, but the husband here was dragging his feet. And you know, if you know such a family, because that continues to be a pattern, and we have some here at Calvary Chapel, I hope you'll pray for their Aristobulus, that that husband would get on with it. And catch up with his family. Verse 11 greet Herodian, my countryman. This man, too, was a fellow Jew. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Verse 12, I love verse 12 greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have labored in the Lord. And both names here are feminine. Tryphena means dainty, and Tryphosa means delicate. The Greek word translated labored means to toil to the point of exhaustion. And so put it all together and Paul is saying, hey, dainty and delicate, they rolled up their shirt sleeves and they worked really hard to serve the Lord. The ladies with the prissy names were actually some rugged laborers. Greet the beloved Persis who labored much in the Lord. This name was also feminine. The church in Rome sounds a lot like Calvary Chapel here, full of ladies who are diligent servants for Christ. They weren't allergic to hard work. And then verse 13, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Mark 15, verse 21, tells us that the man who helped Jesus carry the cross, Simon the Cyrene, had a son named rufus many folks believe this was the same person it could be that simon's selection from the crowd that day and his experience with jesus had led he and his family to convert to christ perhaps he returned to cyrene told his sons and wife about the man that he had helped and they were saved they had given their lives to jesus they later moved to rome and here we find paul writing to rufus and then he says, greet Ansecretus, Phlegon, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermes, and brethren who are with them. Here's a group of men and all that's listed about them is their names. And yet imagine seeing your name in the Bible, in Paul's letter. Can you imagine being Hermas and seeing your name right there on the, on the scroll? My, my, I'm in the Bible. Wow, Paul remembered me. I hope you know whether your pastor remembers your name or not. (laughs) It can be difficult at times. But whether your pastor remembers your name or not, you can trust that Jesus does. Hope you know that. John 10 verse 13 says of our good shepherd, he calls his own sheep by name. Jesus addresses each one of us by name. You know, you can visit the old natural bridge in Virginia and you'll see hundreds of names carved into the boulders surrounding that bridge. But near the top of the cliff, you'll see the initials for the name George Washington. Isn't that interesting? Even the father of our country couldn't resist some graffiti. We all love to hear our names spoken or to see it written, don't we? We do. Once I had a friend of mine, he worked with the elderly folks, and he told me the secret in relating to older folks was to call them by their first name. You know, I always said, he said, when you get older, everyone's your, you know, everyone, you become everyone's elder, and you're only referred to as Mr. or Mrs., and thus it's rare that you hear your own name. He says, we all, young and old, love to hear our name. Remember now, Paul is writing the Bible. He's got limited scroll space. And he has strategic subjects to cover. And yet it's interesting to me, he leaves some room at the end of the scroll to mention each of these saints by name. It just adds credibility to the old saying, God loves each one of us as if there's only one of us to love. That's really true. And then verse 15, greet Philologus. Greet Philologus. The name means lover of the word. You know, if you are looking, if you're a young couple and you haven't, you're about to have a baby and you're looking for a good name, hey, you can't beat Philologus. <laughs> lover of the word, what a name. Reminds me of a little boy who wanted a Bible, just like his mom's. He was asked, he said, Well, why don't you like a, want a Bible like your dad's? He said, well, mom's Bible is more interesting. She's always reading hers. (laughs) Ouch. I hope us all moms and dads are deserving of the name lovers of the word. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And here's another one another command. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Notice it's a holy kiss. That's the important word. Not a lustful or a sneaky or a Judas kiss, but a holy kiss. You know, in Roman culture, a kiss was a form of greeting, like a handshake. And thus we could translate it, greet one another with a holy handshake. Or a kiss, if you dare. Verse 16. The churches of Christ greet you. Surely it delighted all believers worldwide to know that there was a church in the heart of the empire, in Rome itself. All Christians sent their greetings to the strategic church located there in Rome. It was in August 2018, a couple of years ago, when Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain, we took a team to Austria to minister at a retreat that we did for the Calvary Chapel Rome. We then traveled down to Italy on that Sunday to attend their church in person. We felt the same importance in our ministry, trying to help out the believers in Rome. Today, the Calvary Chapel Roma and the other Calvaries in Italy are at the epicenter of Catholicism. They're taking the gospel to folks steeped in religion who don't realize their lostness. People that think they're saved by the church, the churches in Italy are still a big deal with a big task to spread the gospel and then paul writes in verse 17 now i urge you brethren note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learn and avoid them we're to note those who stir up strife and conflict this involves identification how can a church avoid divisive and troublesome people if the leaders don't point out those people this is one of the more unpleasant but important responsibilities of leadership. And then verse 18, for those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. Unfortunately, a deceiver or divider doesn't wear a sandwich board around his neck, identifying himself as a rogue. A religious leader who's only out for himself will tell people what they want to hear. And it's due to this kind of flattery that he can develop a following. That's why such a deceptive leader can't be tolerated, not even a little. He needs to be pointed out. He'll hoodwink simple minds and manipulate gullible hearts. That's why we need to identify him and then avoid him. Then verse 19. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. Be experts in what's good and be naive to what's evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. And here Paul mentions the ancient promise of Genesis 3 verse 15. The verse that foreshadows our future. On the cross, the serpent will bruise Messiah's heel, Genesis said. But in the end, Jesus will crush Satan's head and strip him of all his authority. The Bible tells us that at the end of the age, Jesus will return and those who believe in him will come with him. And our first order of business will be to crush the Antichrist and his army. We'll crush the serpent's head. We'll share in Christ's ultimate triumph over Satan. Remember that when you're up against it and going through hard times. And then verse 20 ends with another salutation. You know, Paul's tried to end before. He can't do it, so now he has another ending. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And now he shifts his focus from his friends in Rome to his companions there in Corinth. He says, Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius. Jason and Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. These were the folks with him in Corinth. He says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. All of a sudden, Tertius makes an insertion into the text. Now, don't get confused here. It's Paul, not Tertius, that authored Romans. Tertius, though, was Paul's stenographer. It was customary for Paul to dictate his letters to a scribe And then at the end, he would pick up his pen, and he would add his signature. And here, as Paul does, Tertius adds his own greeting. I, Tertius, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church, greets you. Evidently, Paul had been staying, and the church in Corinth was meeting in the house of Gaius. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. And this is so provocative here. The treasurer of the city would have been a high-ranking public official, a Roman dignitary. And apparently in Corinth, such a man had embraced the gospel. Several years ago, we traveled on the footsteps of Paul tour, and we actually went to the city of Corinth. And there, our guide showed us an inscription in the stones of the main cardo in Corinth. It referred to an important city official named Erastus. New Testament scholars believe it's the same Erastus mentioned here by Paul. Another proof of the historical reliability of your Bible. And Quartus, a brother. Now check this out. The names Cordus and Tertius are the Greek numerals four and three. See, in the Roman world, oftentimes slaves were given Numbers. They weren't given names, they were just given numbers. And it's possible that these two believers, Tertius and Quartus, or three and four, were former slaves, now considered brothers in Christ. Never underestimate the revolutionary impact that Christianity had on slavery in the ancient world. Overnight, slaves and nobles became equals in Christ. Three and four had the same honor as did Epinitus and Tertius, all the rest. Paul closes for good in verse 24. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And then he adds a wonderful benediction. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Notice Jesus is able to establish us in our faith it's only the gospel that can bulldoze sin and bury doubts and pack a firm footing on which we can stand only the gospel can give us a firm standing once there was a wino he approached D.L. Moody after a meeting this man was drunk as a skunk he shouted he said Mr. Moody I'm one of your converts Moody replied you must be one of my converts because you sure don't look like you were converted by the Lord Jesus causes us to stand strong, not flounder in bondage. Then Paul goes on to say the gospel of Jesus is according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. The gospel was a mystery at one time, but now it's been made manifest. It's been exposed to all and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. And with that final flurry, Paul concludes his glorious letter to the Romans.